Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the Sounds True Foundation. The goal of the Sounds True Foundation is to provide access and eliminate financial barriers to transformational education and resources, such as teachings and trainings on mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion. If you'd like to learn more and join with us in our efforts, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, my guest is Mary Firestone. Mary is a graduate of Princeton University, and she has a master's degree in clinical psychology from Pepperdine University. Her own transformative epiphanies led her, along with her sister Lucy, to found their company Firestone Sisters in 2012, with the aim of providing for people healing and growth opportunities. With Sounds True, Mary Firestone has written a new book. It's called Trusting the Dawn, How to Choose Freedom and Joy After Trauma. It's a very personal book where Mary shares her own healing journey through trauma. She also interviews people, experts, researchers, and people who themselves have gone through transformational journeys healing trauma. And in it, she then extends a hand to us, wherever we are, with a whole set of tools that we can use in her words to trust the dawn. Here's my conversation with Mary Firestone. Mary, as a way to introduce yourself better and to give people a context, really, for Trusting the Dawn, your new book, what was happening in your life that led up to the inspiration for you to write Trusting the Dawn? Well, I had just recently moved to Montecito, which is right by Santa Barbara, California. And we bought this beautiful farmhouse from like 1890. Um, we spent maybe four nights in the house between renovations and then the Thomas fire had ravaged all of Southern California and we'd been evacuated. So in early January, we returned back and the fourth night sleeping in this house, there's um, a, a call for there, there's going to be a potential debris flow. We were not in the evacuation zone. So for reasons I'm not sure of, I woke up at four o'clock in the morning. There'd been a huge gas explosion. So the sky was this like eerily beautiful orange and we hadn't put in curtains yet. So I could see this tidal wave of mud careening towards our house at a record speed. Um, that led to, I was separated from my husband and child and trapped by myself, pregnant for five hours in the dark, surrounded by toxic mud, sewage, debris, um, thinking that my life, well, thinking that this was it, basically. Whoa. And then from that experience and the healing process that you've been through, share a little bit about that leading up to the writing of Trusting the Dawn. 
So I have my background in psychology. I have my degree and my master's in clinical psych. And I knew that I was experiencing symptoms of PTSD. I had nightmares. I had anxiety. I had panic attacks. And at the same time, I was experiencing this whole new level of connection with something bigger than myself, with other people, with life and love and how I wanted to be here and live it. And so I felt the seed of this book was really that, was wanting to share with others that just because you've gone through a trauma does not mean you need to be perpetually labeled. You're not cursed by PTSD. Through healing, there can be this even greater experience of life and love. So that was sort of, I wanted to write this book as an offering to other survivors. Mm-hmm. This new level of connection with all of life, how, how did that emerge after this traumatic mudslide experience? Well, during the months when I was trapped, those five hours, much of it in the dark, um, after the gas, after the light from the gas explosion went out, it was dark and I was in the dark for a long time. And I felt that there was another presence with me, like a loving, some kind of protective, divine, beautiful, other, otherworldly than this world that we, the 3D reality, there was something else going on. It was almost like in the dark that night, I had some kind of window to something greater than myself. And, um, you know, when I look back on it and thinking how many things had to line up perfectly so that my family and I survived and didn't so many of our neighbors perish that night. So I felt very connected to something bigger than me because of that experience. And then in the aftermath, I write about this a bit in the book, but it's almost like being so raw and having my intellectual capacity kind of like pushed to the side there was just I would think things and and put them out into the world like oh it would be really cool too and then things would just happen I felt like very in the flow of life um and I it's trying to get back to that state is hard when we get back to life and we get caught up in the minutiae but um again realizing that there's just so much more going on than what meets the eye. Mm -hmm. One of the things you write about in Trusting the Dawn is the importance of how we share the narratives of traumas from our past. And I wanted to understand more about that and for you to actually demonstrate it to us. How, How might have you shared the narrative previously about whether it's the mudslide trauma or a different trauma in your life. You you also write about some early sexual abuse that you experienced. How might you have shared that narrative previously? And knowing everything you know now, how do you talk about it? What language do you use? Well, first I'll start with the mudslide one and, and then the childhood abuses because there's so many more years with that one. But the mudslide, something that really helped me, it was just even in doing it was the EMDR that I did and in the thinking with the therapist I worked with about my perpetual loop in my head right after the mudslide was 
I almost died. Everyone I know almost died. My mom should have died. My kids, you know, it was like very reactive and very um, me in the victim role. Just switching around the wording of I survived the mudslide. My loved ones survived the mudslide. We were divinely protected in the mudslide. I survived so that I, I may help other trauma survivors. Shifting that narrative from one of victim to empowered survivor, that helped me a lot. And then with, um, you know, when I was seven, I was molested by this 70 year old man. And for decades, I've been, you know, I've been working on it in different ways, but, you know, really dragging that story around with me and um, guilt and shame and all of it. And then through healing from the mudslide, I actually did um, MDMA therapy. And in that therapy session, I thought we'd just be looking at the mudslide. And then, you know, this understanding that just like the mudslide was a force of nature that came down that mountain, and I happened to be in, in its path, whatever was moving through that man was a force of nature, and I just happened to be in his path. So for me, switching that story around again, like it actually had nothing to do with me. It had to do with the force of nature. For me, it was really healing and um, depersonalizing. Is that a word? <laughs> In the best way. You know, I think especially with sexual abuse, we can feel like so much it's our fault or that we do something and like, nope, nothing to do with me everything to do with this other person. Mm -hmm. Now, let me ask you a question because there's some nuances here that I think are important. One has to do uh, with the use of the word victim, which is I think some people, especially, gosh, a child uh, who suffers sexual abuse, they are a victim in a certain sense. And yet I understand the power also of telling our stories from a a different perspective. So how do you make sense of that? Yeah, so there's two uh, two things I want to say about that because I too struggled with that. It's like how and a lot of spiritual teachings and different practitioners in all different walks would say, you know, you have to take 100% responsibility for everything in your life. And that was one question I had. Well, how can I how can you expect a 7-year-old or a child to take responsibility for something so awful. And I like um, what one, one spiritual teacher said. It was, no, don't expect that child to take responsibility. You expect the adult that child grows up to become to take responsibility for the healing of that child. So that was one thing that for me, I was like, okay, okay, that I, I understand that. I can wrap my head around that. The second thing I want to say about the use of the word victim and this idea of victimization, I interviewed this incredible woman named Dr. Edith Eager, who's a Holocaust survivor, and she's written two books called The Choice and the Gift. She's had a thriving practice, uh, therapy practice in La Jolla for decades. And she says victimization is part of life. Like you live long enough, we're all going to be victimized in one way or another victimhood is a choice. We can, you know, choose to stay in that state or we can, you know, 
use what happened to us and transform that experience into out of victimhood. And I think what I'm sort of talking about is this like survivor state of being that's much more empowering. Mm-hmm. That's really helpful. You know, victimhood, that that word hood, that uh, suffix as like a place where you live, where you take up residency versus, yes, I was victimized in this situation. I think that's very, very helpful, that distinction. Now, I'm going to keep going on this slightly nuanced track because I think it's really important because in the book, Trusting the Dawn, it's very powerful how you help us, and you use the word reframe, you help us reframe our experiences. And I know from my own life, from various sufferings that I've had, reframing it and understanding it from a different vantage point is so useful. How do we do that, though, without any kind of, uh, quote unquote, spiritual bypassing, without in any way saying we're going to pretend that these awful feelings we have aren't really there and we're just going to shove them aside? What's your perspective on that? Well, I think the first thing is it, it does take time. It takes probably longer than you know, most people want it to. Um, I think it also it does take healing work. It's hard to do it by ourselves. I think we can get stuck in these loops, understandably. And I've gotten stuck in many a loop and needed other people to kind of like throw the line down and help pull me out. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't think, yeah, I'm not suggesting that we Pollyanna anything. And when those hard feelings come up, I think it's important to honor them, first of all, to name them, to honor them, to journal about them, to work on them with somebody, a therapist, or and yeah, there's so many different healing modalities I list in the book. So finding whatever feels right to you to begin to kind of massage those, <laughs> those feelings. And one of the key things from so many different schools of thought is this concept of integration of the traumatic experience or the suffering so it's not a splintered off other and we're not, it's not something we're trying to get out, but it is how can we work with the narrative, reframe it in a way that just becomes part of our story, but not the story. That mm-hmm. makes sense. It does. And I, I wanted to talk to you about this notion of integration. You write about how in many ways integration may in fact be really the the key to understanding the trauma healing process. So t- tell me what that means from your experience to have integrated a past trauma. Well, I think, you know, as I was just kind of, I feel like anytime we say if it's a bad feeling or a traumatic memory or anytime we say, like, don't think of the elephant, we're all thinking of the elephant. So how do we begin to wrap our heads around what happened and our hearts around it? And for me, you know, sharing about that seven-year-old experience through doing, you know, talk therapy and then um, actually the MDMA and then the ketamine. And this, you're talking to a girl, Tammy, who grew up in the 80s in like Nancy Reagan, Just Say No era. And I say no to drugs. (laughs) And I have found... The ketamine was so incredibly helpful to me, again, in that kind of depersonalizing and the ability to think about 
you know, the night of the mudslide and the aftermath and those experiences of sexual abuse in a way that they're not triggering. It's not going to send my heart racing or put me into a, a panic attack. So that I think is the goal of integration. Like how do we um, de- de-accelerate, <laughs> that's the right word, or like take the charge out of it. Mm-hmm. Tell me more. I- I'd love to get some more of an understanding, both of the MDMA therapy that you did. I mean, quite a you're quite a trauma healing explorer. In Trusting the Dawn, you offer a whole compendium of different approaches, including describing ketamine and MDMA therapy for healing trauma. But for people who aren't familiar with how it works, I'd love to hear your personal experience as well and what you discovered. So... But I love this idea, and this is actually, I kind of even knew it when I was finished with my, getting my master's in psych, that, you know, intellectually, I could understand, and I could talk out and um, understand things that had happened to me, and then it still felt like there was more that kept coming up that I wanted to get to. So that's why I just went, dove into this journey of kind of getting underneath um, underneath these traumas. So ketamine therapy, ketamine is the most powerful and also the gentlest psychedelic. It's the only psychedelic that is right now legal in our country. So they use it actually at much higher doses as an anesthetic for children in hospitals. But um, if used properly, I did mine with a psychiatrist and if it's something that interests you, I recommend working with a psychiatrist doing sessions before you do the ketamine, you do a few sessions of the ketamine, and then you have integration follow-up. I think there's the, the, these places popping up where you can just like pop in and do a ketamine infusion. I don't, I don't recommend doing that. Don't do that. Um, so the way it works is with my psychiatrist, Dr. Jeff Becker, who's brilliant, um, and kind and gentle and all of it, we, he, you know, talks you through it. He injected it into my upper arm and it lasts a very short half-life. So it lasts about 20 minutes. And it, the only way I can think of to describe it is it's like all of your senses merge. feels like you're kind of falling. It feels like you're almost in like dark velvet or warm water and it's like you can not scary like like acid trips I've heard described like it was nothing scary it was all very soothing and warm and this like love and feeling like oh my gosh this level of consciousness is here all the time but we're not accessing it regularly um and in the first ketamine experience actually I had a vision of the mudslide. I was kind of over the Pacific looking back in the mountains of Montecito and I felt warm and safe. And it almost looked like one of those Renaissance oil paintings. It looked beautiful, but the, and it was like there were these angels that were like pouring the mud down the mountain. And at the same time, I could see these like golden threads almost of them pulling up the people that lost their lives that day. And it was just this whole, for me, like, oh, like it was, again, when I'm saying it was an act of nature, it was, it was, you know, 
again, not personal. It just is. So that was very, after that experience, the triggers around the mudslide abated for me. Um, so that helped a lot. I also had a vision of that seven-year-old Mary with that 70-year-old man. And out of the darkness, this like gorilla's face materializes. And first I thought, oh, am I afraid of this gorilla? No, this gorilla is like a good gorilla. And the gorilla like scooped the little seven-year-old Mary out of the scene, away from that man and off to safety. And Dr. Becker, after we were talking, he's like, well, that was your like fierce gorilla self showing up and protecting that seven-year-old self. So images like that, that, you know, really helped tremendously. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it's interesting. You've used this word depersonalizing, that somehow you were able to get a certain kind of distance from the experience instead of being so identified as this happened to me. What I'm curious about, and really in many ways, you know, this has been a curiosity that has fueled all of Sounds True for almost four decades now, is who or what is that I that is integrating these experiences with this increasing sense of kind of depersonalization, if you will. And I'd love to understand your experience of that, just firsthand, first-person experience of the integrated self. Who is that I? Tammy, I love that question because I that kept coming up for me too. And, you know, again, when you reach these altered states of consciousness and, you know, you can do it through holotropic breath work, you don't have to take any drugs at all. There's a lot of ways in and meditation even. But yes, like, who's the I watching that I, watching the I from the past? And um, yeah, I think that's something that I'm still incredibly curious about and, and want to keep exploring different ways to like merge the eyes like is the is the eye that thinks it was personal just my ego or you know or is there some higher merry eye (laughs) so i think i'm still working to understand that and um working to be a more integrated eye and the eye that i know exists in these other realms kind of bringing you know that that I to the present as much as I can. So now in terms of healing trauma as a journey of integration, I want to talk to that person who says, you know, I've had some distance from this thing that happened to me and I feel it's integrated to some degree in my life story and the narrative. And I can even frame it in a way where I see how it generated growth in my life. But the truth is I still get triggered. I still get triggered by this or that. And, you know, it still happens. What would you say to that person? That means it's not fully integrated. There's more work to do. Or is that just what it is? Is that just how it is for huge events that have impacted us? I think, you know, healing is an ongoing journey. I think, you know, we can never heal, check, like, no, I think, you know, that things will continue to come up and that's okay. And again, like, I think that, like, that's not a failure. You're not like failing at your healing if stuff keeps coming up. Like it comes up for me too. And 
that's why there's so many different tools that I use and, and people that I turn to and go back to, you know, with EMDR, I did a lot at the beginning and then I was, you know, fine or, you know, doing much better. And then I got triggered. Um, and I went back. So the same thing with ketamine. I did three journeys at the beginning of my trauma. And then I actually wound up getting divorced and went back to do a ketamine session around that and healing that. So there's, there's going to be the old traumas. There's going to be new traumas. There's going, it's, you know, again, as part of, part of this experience. Mm-hmm. I think. <laughs> and uh, before we move on, you also mentioned uh, MDMA, and I'm curious if you could share uh, what you learned uh, from that experience. Yeah, so MDMA, um, which, you know, street name ecstasy, um, is a heart opener. And unlike ketamine, where you, um, which is a psychedelic and you're unaware of your your body, your space, where you are, with MDMA, you're still very much aware of your surroundings and your physical body. Um, so I used that as a tool to, the ketamine was so powerful. And I, I sort of was like, I feel like, again, there's one more layer, you know, we can keep going and going. And that was the one that was really, I realized with the MDMA, I'm like, oh, the triggers for me with, the mudslide at the moment are pretty re- pretty resolved. I'm not getting triggered around it. I feel um, like I'm in a, an okay space with it. And then that was where again the you know the, the the sexual abuse came up, and I had that vision of the nature moving through. Um, people, you can do journeys. They it lasts much longer. You know, whereas ketamine's half life is 20 minutes. You can do an MDMA journey that lasts for like eight hours. So it's much more of a time commitment. It's also not legal yet. There are um, a lot of organizations working to legalize MDMA as a therapeutic reasons. So it's an, it's another interesting tool, another way in. I love the breath work too, which is, I know we're talking about the pharmacology part, but you know, for people that that might not be right for there's the holotropic breath work which frankly that was like almost as intense an experience just by using your breath alone so it that again drops you into this like subconscious state and um, the man that founded it Stanislav Brock he was using MDMA in his work in in the Czech Republic I think and then he when he moved here, it's illegal. So he he developed this way of breathing that can induce a similar state. I would recommend that. You've been listening to Insights at the Edge. What happens when we begin to identify as love? You could say, as the soul beyond constructs. What changes when you see yourself and others through a loving gaze? Perhaps everything. With her new book, How to Be Loving, Danielle Laporte brings us a guide 
on how to use the intelligence of your heart to create conditions for connection and healing. You can find out more about how to be loving at daniellelaporte.com backslash how to be loving. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, you know, there's, uh, as I mentioned, you offer a whole collection of approaches and resources and practices that people can use, a wide range. And you write about it from your first person experience, your own healing journey. But you're also, you have a master's in clinical psychology. And it, it's interesting to me because in listening to you, I hear the person. I hear the person who sought out these tools for their own healing path. And I'm curious when you bring in for a moment the psychologist, how your training intersected with your own inner journey and inner discovery. That's a good question. Um, yeah, and I think I it is so personal and I did want to write this as a, you know, in a way that people felt, I feel like there's so many books that talk at you and actually in reading a lot of those books that I respect and I've learned from, but I almost was re-traumatized in the reading of them. So I wanted very much my approach with this book for the reader to feel like I was with them and that I understood and that they weren't alone and they didn't have to do this alone. Um, so, and maybe that's not terribly clinical <laughs> of me, but so I think I went the other way, like the training almost, it, I think it offered a good frame. And in the, you know, in the beginning part of the book, I talk about, you know, what happens to the brain and the body after trauma. And then if you want to get into it further, please refer to Bessel van der Kolk's <laughs> And I also consulted with, you know, Dr. Pat Ogden. She's a trauma specialist, and this is her wheelhouse. So I, I brought in the, uh, the more academic um, aspect. But for, I really wanted this to feel personal while grounded and framed in, in science and um and in some psychology. And trusting the dawn does feel personal and it feels like a kind of accompaniment. So you succeeded. Uh, there's a sense of a, a real person, a loving person, uh, someone who's gone through their own ordeals, reaching out a hand and saying, you know, we can, we can walk through this together. Now in describing uh, your own journey, you talk about the traumas you experienced as a type of initiation. And I wanted to understand more about that. I mean, people sometimes say whenever anything really hard, oh, that's an initiation. And I think, you know, okay. But initiated into what? What were you initiated into? Tammy, I was asking that question for, I mean, because it kept coming up. It was like, you know, there's a Jungian psychologist Talk like, oh, you've been initiated. Well, initiated to what exactly? And then this, you know, shaman in the Arizona desert, you've been initiated to what? So I kind of, I kept asking that question and researching it. And 
Well, in the shamanic tradition, they believe that a near-death experience initiates you like anytime the veil between life and death kind of collapses, they view it as an initiation. So you've like seen behind the veil, I suppose. And when I started thinking about it and talking about it, I do think trauma, like anytime we're, we're brought up against mortality, whether our own or someone close to us or someone we don't even know, but we feel it, you know, life is so fragile. I feel like it's the initiation to that. It's this gift in a weird way of like recognizing how fragile life is so that we can kind of like wrap our arms around it and like live it more fully and recognize why we're really here, which is, I think, to connect more, to love more, to to uplift more and to celebrate this incredible planet that we happen to be getting to live on right now. Mm -hmm. So did you think of yourself as a healer and a spokesperson before the mudslide event? And then did this initiate you at a deeper level? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. So my sister and I, Lucy, we've been running these retreats for women for a decade now. And we, you know, really wanted to just offer everything that had been working for us to people. So we've done them, you know, all over in Ojai, Malibu, and Aspen. And we just did our first one in the Caribbean recently, which was really amazing. But, um, so we've always been like facilitating and leading these smaller groups. And we have an essential oil-based perfume. That's everything we put in there is to make you feel a certain way, not just smell good. I talk a little bit about aromatherapy in the book too. So I've always, I've had that framework. I've had that background of wanting to help and offer resources to others. And then, yes, I would say that, the mudslide was like <laughs> definitely an initiation to a deeper layer of being able to relate um, and connect with others. You share in Trusting the Dawn that part of the process for you of writing the book and healing trauma after the mudslide had to do with coming more forward with your own voice and how that brought up past life imagery or things that you thought were maybe past lives, but certainly the imagery of I'm going to be, you know, uh, executed or hung or burned or whatever. And, you know, I've heard this described in other podcasts that I've hosted. I've also heard it described in one a uh, person that I interviewed described it as the witch wound. And I also know in my own life, uh, as someone who's been through a process of coming forward as a public person, I had to go through like, you know, oh my God, I'm going to speak up and they're going to kill me. And it was quite a thing to realize, no, actually, that's not what's happening. You, you're going to be criticized, yes, but they're not going to kill you, most likely. You're just probably going to get some, you know, nasty comments that, you know, so I'm curious to know a bit about that journey for you. Yeah, the witch wound. That's funny, because that happened, I had through the breath work and then past life regression. Um, and then even in like a bit of the ketamine um, experiences as well, I kept having visions of 
you know, getting killed for, you know, like the smoke coming up around my ankles from being burned or being like a female knight. Get, I was not Joan of Arc, although I'm like, maybe, maybe I was. Nope, nope. Everyone's not Joan of Arc, but I was definitely a female knight and I was killed in battle. I know it was a battle for something good. So I had all these images and this fear too. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm going to put myself out there in this way. I'm going to get killed. And um, the breathwork teacher, she too, she was like, oh yeah, the witch wound. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I guess that is a thing. And, um, and I realized this time a friend just the other day said to me, well, no, this time you just had to almost get killed to help others. So I'm not going to get killed this time for helping others, but perhaps my own near death experience is what is initiating me to be able to help other people this time. And what would you say to someone who is in the midst of coming forward more with their voice, but does have a fear, a fear of being criticized, humiliated or killed or anything in that range? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think, you know, I, I feel like you just have to say, like, be careful who you're going to speak it to. If you're an abusive, in an abusive situation, don't speak it there. Um, but find safe platforms to begin speaking more, whether it's close friends, whether it's a teacher, whether it's a therapist, start practicing more and more. And I think what I'm realizing and then speaking my truth and speaking up, it gives other people permission to then speak, speak up themselves. And um, especially as women and like growing up how I did on the East coast and very proper and, you know, have a Southern mother and a, and kind of a waspy dad. So it was always like, <laughs> just look pretty and, do all the things you're supposed to do. I love my parents. They're wonderful. But, you know, it was definitely the culture of definitely don't speak up. Mm -hmm. Now, past life regression and the hypnosis that is part of a past life regression therapy also seemed to be quite helpful to you on your uh, healing from trauma journey. Can you share a bit about that? Yeah, I... I love to that, you know, she's like, we're going to hypnotize you. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. It worked. <laughs> um, the woman I did it with, Nikki Cosmo, she's awesome. And, you know, she said out of the hundreds of people she has worked with, only like two could not be hypnotized. So anyway, I just want to say it, it worked. And um, yeah, I think it was a really powerful experience for me in seeing the one that really stood out the most was that it was the female night and um again for me in my integration afterwards was you know instead of waiting for like the prince to ride in and save me in the in the ketamine i saved myself with the gorilla and then i actually rode off on the back of a white horse i saw that in the past life regression I had my own sword and I, you know, fought for myself and had my own white horse. So I, I kind of like that idea too, of like finding through these different therapies, it was finding like my own inner strength, which again, I think goes to like speaking up to it's all different forms mm -hmm. of strength, whether mm -hmm. it's speaking it, 
wielding our sword around. Now, Mary, let's say someone's listening to this and they're like, yeah, this all sounds great. I don't have the resources to have a ketamine series of sessions or see a past life regression hypnotist. You know, once again, uh, sounds true is sharing a bunch of ideas that are out of range for me. Uh, what would be your re- response to that? Yeah, absolutely. So meditation is something that's a great way in. It's so wild, widely accessible these days. Um, so I would say you could start with meditation. You could start even, I've referred to EMDR a couple times. I reference a woman in the book named Dr. Laurel Parnell. She wrote a book called Tapping In, and she walks you through. And even in the book, I walk you through a little butterfly tapping exercise that can be done at home and it's free. Um, Aromatherapy and flower essences, they're maybe not free, but they're pretty accessible. If you have a health food store, the Bach Flower Remedies, um, are a good place to start with flower essences and like a whole foods or something will have like, you know, aromatherapy you can play around with that. Um, Which aromatherapies and flower essences did you find particularly effective for you? There's a, a company I love called Lotus Way. Um, she makes flower essences that you can spray on yourself or take, uh, put them on your tongue or in water. And they're amazing. I have a whole chapter about that in the book, but you know, they take the different, the essence of the plant or the flower, distill it into water. And just like everything has an energetic vibration, different plants and flowers have energetic vibration. So they will guide you into what you're looking for and what would be a good one to go with. Like I think Aspen, the Aspen tree is a good one for trauma. Um, spotted bee balm is another good one. Uh, oh, and then I also want to say qigong, Chinese medicine. Qigong is a form of energy cultivation that is free, and I have found that incredibly helpful. It's literally like 24 movements, and that's helped me a lot. Journaling is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I reference a couple different books that I turn to, self-help books that that have been great resources. So there's lots of ways to to come at this regardless of your budget. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, I focused in on the ketamine therapy, the past life regression, MDMA, and you also mentioned holotropic breath work. And I think part of it is because I have this interest in how altered states, if you will, or expanded states of consciousness can be helpful in healing trauma. And I wonder what your view is of that, the power of these expanded states. Honestly, Tammy, I say to Jeff Becker, who helped me with the ketamine, like, you changed my life. You know, now doing, accessing those altered states through the breathwork and the ketamine and the um, MDMA, that's like, it changed my life. The way that I look at life now is so much broader and bigger. And, and it also gave me some, um, I feel like I had this feeling that there's something wrong with me that I've been in therapy for decades and talking, talking it out and doing my work. And yet I would still feel this underlying 
anxiety or, you know, tension or that there was something more to work on. And I feel like accessing the altered states helped me so much in, in getting underneath it. And again, just knowing that there's so many different levels and should I feel that way again, then I'm going to get right back under there <laughs> and then I now have the tools to do it. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you mentioned, Mary, that you got divorced in the post-mudslide period. Here you are, you're doing all of this healing work, and now your marriage changes as well. Do you feel that part of it was that you went on such a deep journey that you changed in certain ways? And I wonder if you can speak to that, because I think sometimes uh, people can be afraid of doing really deep healing work because they think, and it could be the end of my marriage if I if I do this. So can you share a bit about that? Yeah, when I started researching, because I have a chapter at the end about relationships in the wake of trauma, and I, I wrote, you know, I remember when I started researching it, there's some research that shows that a lot of couples wind up breaking up after surviving a traumatic event which terrified me. And yet, you know, I'm so passionate about this work. And I also having children, there was no way I wasn't going to do my healing work because I also wanted to not pass things down to them as, as best I could. And I do think, you know, I, Napper and I are still great friends and we're great co-parents, but ultimately I took this healing journey that opened up my heart and my life and my understanding in such a way that that we weren't a right um, love match anymore. And I know it can be scary. And I also have to say that to me, to stay in something that is not giving you the support and the, the room to do this exploring, that no, like, like do it, make the change. And actually now I have a wonderful partner who's a healer himself. And um, it's been really such a gift. And Napper has a great new girlfriend. So it all worked out. It just, sometimes relationships change form. Like Shakti Gawain talks about that and not being afraid of it. Um and Mark Nepo, actually, I love Mark Nepo, the spiritual teacher. He shared with me, he said, if you picture a couple in a body of water, sometimes a boulder gets dropped to the side of them and they get propelled together in a direction. And sometimes the boulder gets dropped between the two people and they get, you know, propelled in apart from each other. So again, this idea that, um, I don't know, that it's not, well, I don't want to say that's not personal because it is a personal relationship, but you know, that not to be afraid and to hold on to something that isn't right just because the alternative is scary. Mm-hmm. I'm going to actually even go a little deeper into that because I'm, I'm, I am really curious about it. Like, did you start feeling the tendrils of that change coming uh, as you were doing deeper and deeper healing work? Did you start to sense it? And did you have to then say, oh, I'm going to have to work out this fear? I mean, especially with children and everything. How did you work through it? 
Well, first of all, I would say, you know, Napper and I had been working really hard on our marriage even before we got engaged in our 20s. So this was a relationship where we are always working on it. And um, I've always been so interested in self-development and other altered states and all. So, you know, and he would he would do the he would come along with me as best he could and and as interested as he was or wasn't. So I just want to make that clear that we had you know we were working on things before the mudslide, and then um, the trauma kind of thrust us closer together for a while as we were working on putting our life back together, finding ways to live having another baby. And then after that, you know, the first thing during, it was the very beginning of um, COVID and I, Joe Dispenza, who I love, I was like, let's, we're going to do Joe Dispenza's meditations together. And, you know, Joe Dispenza says, like when you first start doing this work really intensely, be prepared for your life to look like chaos and for things that are no longer in a vibration, a vibrational match will fall away. Don't be afraid of it. It's all part of the process. Literally, we did like two months of the Joe Dispenza meditation classes. And that was when it was like, oh, we're, I don't, we're not meant to be together anymore. So that was pretty powerful. Mm-hmm. You know, Mary, what I have to say I'm really appreciating about this conversation is something that I would call real talk, meaning you're just so real with me here as I'm asking you these very personal, challenging questions about your inner life and inner process. And I just want to uh, take a moment and appreciate that and appreciate that in you. It's a type of confidence in the truth that I don't always find. And I just want to acknowledge you for that. Thank you. Now, you mentioned uh, that you interviewed Dr. Edith Eager as part of your book. She's written a book called The Choice. And I couldn't help but note the subtitle of Trusting the Dawn, How to Choose Freedom and Joy After Trauma. And I wanted to talk a little bit about this notion of the power of choice and how you see that and the choices that we make. Maybe some people think like, God, you know, the trauma, all these feelings, I don't have a choice. This is what's going on. I mean, I'm suffering. Yeah. And sometimes we don't have the choice. Like I feel like even, you know, the other day, I'm like, gosh, I'm so anxious today. I don't know why. And I'm feeling really overwhelmed with that. So I think, again, going back to our earlier conversation of like acknowledging the feeling and do I have a choice in that immediate moment to like feel joyful (laughs) maybe not but I'm choosing to acknowledge the feeling I'm having the feeling I know it will pass that too trusting the dawn like that was meant you know metaphorically that when we're in a dark moment trust that that moment will pass um and yeah, I really, Dr. Edie was so inspiring to me thinking about, my gosh, if this woman, you know, can choose her joy and happiness after surviving Auschwitz, then 
it was very encouraging and inspiring to me. Like, well, she did it. I, I'm going to do it too. And that's what I say too. Someone asked me like, well, but what about like my trauma is not as bad as your trauma kind of thing. And Edie, Dr. Edie says there's no hierarchy of traumas. Everyone's trauma is the worst because it happened to them. So um, I guess I feel like I, I tangented it off away from your question of choice. I think what you've said is powerful. It's powerful. Now, you mentioned uh, even the other day you started feeling anxious. And I know after the mudslides, uh, you write about in Trusting the Dawn how you experienced panic attacks. Do you ever have a, a fear that you're going to have a panic attack again? And what do you do when you start feeling anxious that gives you confidence that you're not going to have a full-blown panic attack? Yeah. Yeah, they're really scary. Um I think now I, I've always been pretty disciplined with my daily practices. And I say, even, you know, even when I'm feeling great, I'm like, everything's great. I don't need to do it today. No, like that's exactly the day that you need to do it because keeping a, a steady foundation for me, then in those moments like the other day, when I dip down into feeling anxious, the dip is not as long and um, and the, you know, coming back to my steady state is that much easier. So, um, every day I practice Qigong, I read something inspirational and do kind of like a gratitude letter to, I write to God, but I know that's triggering to some people. So higher power, the universe, myself, whatever. And that kind of helps me set the tone for the day. Um, and um yeah i think i think i know the anxiety will pass i physically move my body exercise shake jump around i also take propranolol sometimes which is um it you know it helps with anxiety or public speaking things like that um so those are some of my tools all right mary what is your hope that readers will get from Trusting the Dawn? My hope is really for people to know that they're not alone and that, you know, if I can do it, if some of the other trauma survivors I interview in the book can do it, then you can do it too. And that life on the other side of healing from trauma can be that much more fulfilling and connected and wondrous. I've been speaking with Mary Firestone. She's the author of the new book, Trusting the Dawn, How to Choose Freedom and Joy After Trauma. And if you've ever been curious about all of the different approaches that exist for how to work through a trauma, I can recommend Trusting the Dawn because Mary goes through in quite some detail and shares the methodology, the experience, and the results that she experienced as well. And it's a beautifully written book. Your heart shines through, Mary. Thank you. Thank you, Tammy. Thanks for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at resources.soundstrue.com backslash podcast. That's resources.soundstrue.com slash podcast. If you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. 
And if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I absolutely love getting your feedback and being connected. Sounds true. Waking up the world. <laughs>